Chapter Twelve of A Mama's Wife by George Moore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve. The rest of the journey was accomplished monotonously. The conversation drifting into a discussion, in the course of which mention was made of actors, singers, theatre, prices of admission, makeups, stage management, and music. It was in Birmingham that Ashton, Leslie's understudy, sang the tenor's music instead of her own in the first act of the cloche, and poor so-and-so, who was playing the grenicheur, oh, how he did look when he heard his B-flat go off! Flat, murmured Montgomery sorrowfully, isn't the word. I assure you it loosened every tooth in my head. I broke my stick trying to stop her, but it was no bloody good then explanations of how the different pieces had been produced in paris were volunteered and the talents of the different composers were discussed and all held their sides and roared when dubois who kate began to perceive was the company's laughing-stock declared that he thought offenbach too polcaic at last the train rolled into derby and dick asked a red pimply-faced man in a round hat if he had secured good places for his posters spiffing the man answered and he saluted leslie but i couldn't get you the rooms they're let and between ourselves you'll have a difficulty in finding what you want this is cattle show week you'd better come on at once with me i know a hotel that isn't bad and you can have first choice beaumont's old rooms but you must come at once kate was glad to see that mr bill williams the agent in advance did not remember her she however recognised him at once as the man who had sent dick to her house cattle show week all the rooms in town let cried leslie who had overheard part of mr williams's whisperings oh dear i do hope my rooms aren't let i hate going to an hotel let me out i must see about them at once here frank take hold of this bag there's no use being in such a hurry if the rooms are let they're let what's the name of the hotel you were speaking of williams oh, forget the name but if you don't find lodgings i'll leave you the address at the theatre said the agent in advance winking at dick you're too damn clever williams you'll be making somebody's fortune one of these days kate had some difficulty in keeping close to dick for he was surrounded the moment he stepped out on the platform the baggage man had a quantity of questions to ask him and hayes was desirous of re-explaining how the ticket collector had happened to misunderstand him pulling his long whiskers the acting manager walked about murmuring stupid fool stupid darn fool and there were some twenty young women who pleaded in turn their little hands laid on the arm of the popular fat man yes dear that's it he answered i'll see to it to-morrow i'll try not to put you in miss crawford's dressing-room since you don't agree oh and mr lennox you will see that i'm not shoved into the back row by miss dacre won't you yes dear yes dear i'll see to that too but i must be off now and you'd better see after lodgings i hear they're very scarce if you aren't able to get any come up to the hen and chickens i hear they have rooms to let there oh, poor little girls he murmured to williams as they got into a cab they only have twenty-five bob a week 
One can't see them robbed by landladies who can let their rooms three times over. Mm, just as you like, said Williams, but you'll have the hotel full of them. As they drove through the town, Dick called attention to the animated appearance of the crowds, and Williams explained the advantages of the corners he had chosen, and at last the cab stopped at the inn, or rather before the archway of a stone passage some four or five yards wide. "'There's no inn here?' "'Oh, yes, there is, and a very nice inn, too. The entrance is a little way up the passage.' It was an old-fashioned place. Probably it had been a fashionable resort for sporting squires at the beginning of the century. The hall was wainscoted in yellow-painted wood. On the right-hand side there was a large brown press with glass doors, surmounted by a pair of buffalo horns. On the opposite wall hung a barometer, and the wide, slowly-sloping staircase, with its thick, low banisters, ascended in front of the street door. The apartments were not, however, furnished with archaeological correctness. A wallpaper of an antique design contrasted with a modern tablecloth, and the sombre red curtains were ill-suited to the plate glass which had replaced the narrow windows of old time. Dick did not like the dust nor the tarnish, but no other bed and sitting-room being available, a bargain was soon struck and the proprietor, after hoping that his guests would be comfortable, informed them that the rule of his house was that the street door was barred and locked at eleven o'clock, and would be reopened for no one. He was a quiet man who kept an orderly house, and if people couldn't manage to be in before midnight, he didn't care for their custom. After grumbling a bit, Dick remembered that the pubs closed at eleven, and as he didn't know anyone in the town, there would be no temptation to stay out. Williams, who had been attentively examining Kate, said that he was going down to the theatre, and asked if he should have the luggage sent up. This was an inconvenient question, and as an explanation was impossible before the hotel-keeper, Dick was obliged to wish Kate good-bye for the present, and accompany Williams down to the theatre. She took off her bonnet mechanically, threw it on the table, and sitting down in an armchair by the window, let her thoughts drift to those at home. Whatever doubt there might have been at first, they now knew that she had left them, and for ever. The last three words cost her a sigh, but she was forced to admit them. There could be no uncertainty now in Ralph and his mother's mind that she had gone off with Mr. Lennox. Yes, she had eloped. There could be no question about the fact. She had done what she had so often read of in novels, but somehow it didn't seem at all the same thing. This was a startling discovery to make, but of the secret of her disappointment she was nearly unconscious, and rousing herself from the torpor into which she had fallen, she hoped that Dick would not stop away long. It was so tiresome waiting. But soon Miss Leslie came running upstairs. "'Dinner has been ordered for five o'clock, and we've made up a party of four. You, Dick, myself and Frank.' Oh, "'And what time is it now?' Oh, "'About four. Don't you think you'll be able to hold out till then?' "'Oh, dear me, yes. I'm not very hungry.' "'And I'll lend you anything you want for tonight.' Oh, thanks. It's very kind of you. 
Kate fell to wondering if her kindness had anything to do with Dick, and with the view to discovering their secret if they had one, she watched them during dinner, and was glad to see that Mr. Frank Brett occupied the prima donna's entire attention. Soon after dinner the party dispersed. "'You'll not be able to buy anything to-night,' Dick said, and Kate answered, "'Leslie said she'd lend me a nightgown.' "'Oh, and to-morrow you'll buy yourself a complete rig-out.' And he gave her five-and-twenty pounds, and told her to pal with Leslie that she was the best of the lot. It seemed to her quite a little fortune, and as Dick had to go to London next morning, she sent up word to Leslie to ask if she would come shopping with her. The idea of losing her lover so soon frightened her, and had it not been for the distraction that the buying of clothes afforded her, the week she spent in Derby would have been intolerable. Leslie, it is true, often came to sit with Kate, and on more than one occasion went out to walk with her. But there were long hours which she was forced to pass alone in the gloom of the hotel sitting-room, and as she sat making herself a travelling dress, oppressed and trembling with thoughts, she was often forced to lay down her work. She had to admit that nothing had turned out as she had expected. Even her own power of loving appeared feeble in comparison to the wealth of affection she had imagined herself lavishing upon Dick. Something seemed to separate them. Even when she lay back and he held her in his arms, she was not as near to him as she had dreamed of being, and, try as she would, she found it impossible to wipe out of her mind the house in Hanley. It rose before her, a dark background with touches of clear colour, the little girls working by the luminous window with the muslin curtains and the hanging pot of green stuff, the stiff-backed woman moving about with plates and dishes in her hands, the invalid wheezing on the little red calico sofa. The past was still reality, and the present a fable. It didn't seem true, lying with a man who was still strange to her, rising when she pleased, even getting her meals when she pleased. She couldn't realise the fact that she had left for ever her quiet home in the potteries, and was travelling about the country with a company of strolling actors. The spider that had spun itself from the ceiling did not seem suspended in life by a less visible thread than herself. Supposing Dick were never to return! The thought was appalling, and on more than one occasion she fell down on her knees to pray to be preserved from such a terrible misfortune. But her hours of solitude were not the worst she had to bear. Impelled by curiosity to hear all the details of the elopement, and urged by an ever-present desire to say unpleasant things, Miss Beaumont paid Kate many visits, and, sitting with her thick legs crossed, she insinuated all she dared. She didn't venture upon a direct statement, but by the aid of a smile and an indirect allusion, it was easy to suggest that love in an actor's heart is brief. As long as Miss Beaumont was present, Kate repressed her feelings, but when she found herself alone, tears flowed down her cheeks and sobs echoed through the dusty sitting-room. It was in one of these trances of emotion that Dick found her when he returned, and that night she accompanied him to the theatre. 
The piece played was Les Cloches de Conville. Miss Beaumont, as Germain, disappointed her, and she could not understand how it was that the Marquis was not in love with Sir Paulette. But the reality that most grossly contradicted her idea was that Dick should be playing the part of the Bailey, and when she saw her hero fall down in the middle of the stage and heard everybody laugh at him, she felt both ashamed and insulted. The romantic character of her mind asserted itself, and against her will forced her to admire the purple-cloaked Marquis. Then her thoughts turned to considering if she would be able to act as well as any one of the ladies on the stage. It didn't seem to her very difficult, and Dick had told her that with a little teaching she would be able to sing as well as Beaumont. The sad expression that her face wore disappeared, and she grew impatient for the piece to finish, so that she might speak to Dick about taking lessons. They were now in the third act, and the moment the curtain was rung down she hurried away, asking as she went the way to the stage door. It was by no means easy to find. She lost herself once or twice in the back streets, and when she at last found the right place, the hall-keeper refused her admittance. "'Do you belong to the company?' After a moment's hesitation, Kate replied that she did not, but that moment's hesitation was sufficient for the porter, and he at once said, "'Pass on. You'll find Mr. Lennox on the stage.' Timidly, she walked up a narrow passage filled with men talking at the top of their voices, and from thence made her way into the wings. There she was told that Mr. Lennox was up in his room, but would be down shortly.' For a moment, Kate could not realise where she was, so different was the stage now from what it had been whenever she had seen it before. The present aspect was an entirely new one. It was dark like a cellar, and in the flaring light that spurted from an iron gas-pipe, the stage carpenter carried rocking pieces of scenery to and fro. The auditorium was a round blank, overclouded in a deep twilight, through which Kate saw the long form of a grey cat moving slowly round the edge of the upper boxes. Getting into a corner, so as to be out of the way of the people who were walking up and down the stage, she matured her plans for the cultivation of her voice, and waited patiently for her lover to finish dressing. This he took some time to do and when he did at length come downstairs he was of course surrounded. Everybody, as usual, wanted to speak to him, but gallantly offering her his arm and bending his head, he asked in a whisper how she liked the piece, and insisted on hearing what she thought of this and that part, before he replied to any one of the crowd of friends who in turn strove to attract his attention. This was very flattering, but she was nevertheless obliged to relinquish her plan of explaining to him, there and then, her desire to learn singing. He couldn't keep his mind fixed on what she was saying. Mortimer was telling a story at which everybody was screaming, and just at her elbow Dubois and Montgomery were engaged in a violent argument regarding the use of consecutive fifths. But besides these distractions, there was a tall, thin man who kept nudging away at Dick's elbow, begging of him to come over to his place, and saying that he would give him as good a glass of whisky as he had ever tasted. Nobody knew who the man was, but Dick thought he'd met him somewhere up in the north. "'I've been about, gentlemen, in America and in France, 
and I lead a bachelor life. My house is across the way, and if you'll do me the honour to come in and have a glass with me, I shall feel highly honoured. If there's one thing I do enjoy more than another, it's the conversation of intellectual men. And after the performance of tonight, I don't see how I can do better than to come to you for it. Oh, but, uh, he continued gallantly, if I said just now that I was a bachelor, it is, I assure you, not because I dislike the sex. My solitary state is my misfortune, not my fault. And if these ladies will accompany you, gentlemen, need I say that I shall be charmed and honoured? Oh, we'll do the honouring, and the ladies will do the charming, Mortimer said, and on these words the whole party followed the tall thin man to his house, a small affair with a porch and green blinds, such as might be rented by a well-to-do commercial traveller. The furniture was mahogany and leather, and when the sideboard was opened, the acrid odour of tea and the sickly smells of stale bread and rank butter were diffused through the room, but these were quickly dominated by the fumes of the malt. A bottle of port was decanted for the ladies. To the host nothing was too much trouble. His guests must eat as well as drink, and he went down to the kitchen and helped the maidservant to bring up all the eatables that were in the house, some cold beef and cheese, and after having partaken of these the company stretched themselves in their chairs. Hayes drank his whisky in silence, while Montgomery, his legs thrown over the arm of his chair, tried to get in a word concerning the refrain of a comic song he had just finished scoring. But as the song was not going to be sung in any of the pieces they were touring with, no one was interested, and Mortimer's talk about the regeneration of the theatre was becoming so boring that Leslie and Beaumont had begun to think of bedtime and might have taken their departure if Dubois had not said that all the great French actresses had lovers and that the English would do well to follow their examples. A variety of opinions broke forth, and everyone seemed to wake up. Anecdotes were told that brought the colour to Kate's cheeks and made her feel uncomfortable. Dubois had lived a great deal in France. It was not certain that he had not acted in French, and sitting with his bishop's hat tilted on the back of his head, he related that Agar had described George Sand as a sort of pouncing disease that had affected her health more than all her other lovers put together. Dubois was declared to have insulted the profession. Dick agreed that Dubois didn't know what he was talking about. George Sand was a woman, not a man and Montgomery, who had a sister-in-law starring in Scotland, refused to be appeased until he was asked to accompany Leslie and Brett in a duet. The thin man, as everybody now called him, said he had never been so much touched in his life, a statement which Beaumont did her best to justify by going to the piano and singing three songs one after another. The third was a signal for departure and while Montgomery vowed under his breath that it was quite enough to have to listen to Beaumont during business hours, Dick tried to awaken Hayes. He had fallen fast asleep. Their kind host said he would put him up for the night, but the mummers thought they'd be able to get him home, so bidding the kindest of farewells to their host, whom they hoped they would see the following evening at the theatre, they stumbled into the street, pushing and carrying the drunken man between them. It was very hard to get Hayes along. 
every ten or a dozen yards he would insist on stopping in the middle of the roadway to argue the value and sincerity of the friendship his comrades bore for him mortimer strove to pacify him saying that he would stand in a puddle all night if by doing so he might prove that he loved him and dubois entreated him to believe him when he said that to sit with him under a cold september moon talking of the dear dead days would be a bliss that he could not forego but the comedian's jokes soon began to seem idle and flat and the ladies proposed to walk on in front leaving the gentlemen to get their friend home as best they could you're thinking of your beds dick cried and that reminded him that the hotel-keeper had told him that he shut his doors at eleven and would open them for no one before morning oh what are we to do asked leslie it's very cold we'll ring him up said dubois but if he doesn't answer suggested brett i'll jolly soon make him answer said dick now then hayes wake up old man and push along push along how could you talk to me like that you're shunting me for one of those other fellows we'll talk about that in the morning old man now mortimer you get hold of his other arm and we'll run him along mr hayes struggled declaring the while that he would no longer believe in the world's friendship but with montgomery pushing from behind the last hundred yards were soon accomplished and the drunken burden deposited against the wall of the passage dick pulled the bell the whole party listened to the distant tinkling and after a minute or two of suspense mortimer said mm, that won't do dick ring again we shall be here all night tinkle 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 went the bell and a husky voice issuing from the dark shadow of the wall said i rang for another whisky waiter that's all oh the still-room maid has gone to sleep sir mortimer answered and the bell was rung again and again and whilst one of the company was pulling at the wire another was hammering away with the knocker all the same no answer could be obtained and the mummers consulted leslie and brett who proposed that they should seek admittance at another hotel dubois that they should beg hospitality of the other members of the company montgomery that they should go back to the theatre but the hotel-keeper had no right to lock them out and they had a perfect right to break into his house and the chances they ran of doing a week were anxiously debated as they searched for a piece of wood to serve as a ram none of sufficient size could be found much to the relief of the ladies and dubois who strongly advised dick to renounce this door-smashing experiment oh dick pray don't whispered kate what does it matter it'll be daylight in a few hours that's all very well but i tell you he has no right to lock us out he's a licensed hotel-keeper are you game mortimer we can burst in the door with our shoulders game said mortimer in a nasal note that echoed down the courtyard partridges are in season in september here goes and taking a run he jumped with his full weight against the door out of the way cried dick breaking away from kate and hurling his huge frame a little closer to the lock than the comedian had done 
the excitement being now at boiling pitch the work was begun in real earnest and as they darted in regular succession out of the shadow of the buttress across the clear stream of moonlight flowing down the flagstones they appeared like a procession of figures thrown on a cloth by a magic lantern mr hayes white stocking served for a line and bump bump they went against the door each effort was watched with different degrees of interest by the ladies when little dubois toddled forward and sprang with what little impetus his short legs could give him it was difficult not to laugh and when montgomery's reed-like shanks were seen passing kate clung to miss leslie in fear he would crush his frail body against the door but when it came to the turn of any of the big ones the excitement was great mortimer and brett were watched eagerly but most faith was placed in dick not only for his greater weight but for his superior and more plucky way of jumping springing from the very middle of the passage his head back and his shoulder forward he went like a thunderbolt against the door it seemed wonderful that he didn't bring down the wall as well as the woodwork and a round of applause rewarded each effort hayes who fancied himself in bed and that the waiter was calling him at some strange hour in the morning shouted occasionally the most fearful of curses from his dark corner the noise was terrific and the clapping of hands shrieks of laughter and cries of encouragement reverberated through the echoing passage and the silent moonlight at last dick's turn came again and enraged by past failures he put forth his whole strength and jumped from the white stocking with his full weight against the door it gave way with a crash and at that moment the proprietor appeared holding a candle in his hand everybody made a rush and picking up dick who was not in the least hurt they struck matches on the wall and groped their way up to their rooms heedless of the denunciations of the enraged proprietor who declared he would take an action against them all in his dressing-gown and by the light of his candle he surveyed his dismantled threshold thinking how he might fasten up his house for the night the first object he caught sight of was mr hayes's white stocking as he did so a wicked light gleamed in his eyes and after a few efforts to wake the drunkard he walked to the gateway and looked up and down the street to see if a policeman were in sight in real truth he was doubtful as to his rights to lock visitors out of their hotel and didn't feel disposed to discuss the question before a magistrate but what could be said against him for requesting the removal of a drunken man he didn't know who he was nor was he bound to find out so argued the proprietor of the hen and chickens and mr hayes still protesting that he didn't want to be called before ten was dragged off to the station next morning the hotel-keeper denied knowing anything whatever about the matter it was true he had called the policeman's attention to the fact that there was a man asleep under the archway but he didn't know that the man was mr hayes this story was rejected by the company and vowing that they would never again go within a mile of his shop they all went to see poor hayes pulled out before the beak it was a forty shilling affair or the option of a week and in revenge dick invited last night's party to dinner at a restaurant they weren't going to put their money into the pocket of that cad of an innkeeper hayes was the hero of the hour and he made everybody roar with laughter at the way in which he related his experiences 
but after a time dick who always had an eye to business drew his chair up to mortimer's and begged of him to try to think of some allusions to the adventures which could be worked into the piece the question was a serious one and until it was time to go to the theatre the art of gagging was warmly argued dubois held the most liberal views he said that after a certain number of nights the author's words should be totally disregarded in favour of topical remarks brett who was slow of wit maintained that the dignity of a piece could only be maintained by sticking to the text and cited examples to support his opinion it was however finally agreed that whenever mortimer came on the stage he should say derby isn't a safe place to get drunk in and that dubois should reply rather not owing to these little emendations the piece went with a scream the receipts were over a hundred and morton and cox's operatic company having done a very satisfactory week's business assembled at the station on sunday morning bound for blackpool kate and dick jumped into a compartment with the same people as before plus a chorus girl who was making up to montgomery in the hopes of being allowed to say on the entrance of the duke oh what a jolly fellow he is mortimer shouted to hayes who always went with the pipe smokers and dick spoke about the possibility of producing some new piece at liverpool dubois mortimer brett and the chorus girl settled down to a game of nap dick leslie and montgomery were singing tunes or fragments of tunes to each other and talking about effects that might be introduced into the new piece but would dick produce a new piece the conversation changed and it was asked if no money could be saved this trip in the taking of the tickets and dick was closely questioned as to when in his opinion it would be safe to try their little plant on again instead of answering he leant back and gradually a pleasant smile began to trickle over his broad face he was evidently maturing some plan what is it dick oh do say like a good fellow was repeated many times but he refused to give any reply this aroused the curiosity of the company and it grew to burning pitch when the train drew up at a station and dick began a conversation with the guard concerning the length of time they would have at preston and where they would find the train that was to take them on to blackpool you'll have a quarter of an hour's wait at preston you'll arrive there at four-twenty and at thirty-five past you'll find the train for blackpool drawn up on the right-hand side of the station thanks very much replied dick as he tipped the guard and then turning his head towards his friends he whispered it's as right as a trivet i shall be back in a minute where's he off to asked everybody he's just gone into the telegraph office said montgomery who was stationed at the window a moment after dick was seen running up the platform his big hat giving him the appearance of an american as he passed each compartment of their carriage he whispered something in at the window what can he be saying what can he be arranging asked miss leslie i don't care how he arranges it as long as i get a drink on the cheap at preston said mortimer that's the main point replied dubois well dick what is it exclaimed everybody as the big man sat down beside kate the moment the train arrives at preston we must all make a rush for the refreshment rooms and ask for mr simpson's lunch 
who's mr simpson what lunch oh do tell us what a mysterious fellow you are were the exclamations reiterated all the way along the route but the only answer they received was now what does it matter who mr simpson is eat and drink all you can and for the life of you don't ask who mr simpson is but only for his lunch and as soon as the train stopped actors actresses chorus girls and men conductor prompter manager and baggagemen rushed like a school towards the glass doors of the refreshment room where they found a handsome collation laid out for forty people where's mr simpson's lunch shouted dick oh here sir here all is ready replied two obliging waiters where's mr simpson's lunch echoed dubois and montgomery oh, this way sir uh, what will you take sir cold beef chicken and ham or a little soup asked half a dozen waiters the ladies were at first shy of helping themselves and hung back a little but dick drove them on and the first step taken they ate of everything but kate clung to dick timidly refusing all offers of chicken ham and cold beef oh, but is this paid for she whispered to him oh of course it is mr simpson's lunch take care of what you're saying uh, tuck into this plate of chicken will you have a bit of tongue with it and not having the courage to refuse kate complied in silence dick crammed her pockets with cakes but soon the waiters began to wonder at the absence of mr simpson and had already commenced their inquiries approaching mortimer the head waiter asked that gentleman if mr simpson was in the room oh he's just slipped round to the bookstall to get a sunday paper he'll be back in a minute and if you'll get me another bit of chicken in the meantime i shall feel obliged in five minutes more the table was cleared and everybody made a movement to retire and it was then that the refreshment-room people began to exhibit a very genuine interest in the person of mr simpson one waiter begged of dick to describe the gentleman to him another besought of dubois to say at what end of the table mr simpson had had his lunch in turn they appealed to the ladies and to the gentlemen but were always met with the same answer just saw him a minute ago going up to the station if you run after him you're sure to catch him mr simpson why he was here a minute ago i think he was speaking about sending a telegram perhaps he's up in the office the train bell then rang and like a herd in motion the whole company crowded to the train the guard shouted the panic-stricken waiters tumbled over the luggage and running from carriage to carriage begged to be informed as to mr simpson's whereabouts he's in the end carriage i tell you back there just at the other end of the train the seedy black coats were then seen hurrying down the flags but only to return in a minute breathless for further information but this could not last for ever and the guard blew his whistle the actors began gagging and oh the singing the whistling the cheers of the mummers as the train rolled away into the country now all agleam with the sunset tattoos were beaten with sticks against the woodwork of each compartment dick with his body half out of the window and his curls blowing in the wind yelled at hayes montgomery disputed with dubois for possession of the other window and three chorus girls giggled and munching stolen cakes tried to get into a conversation with kate 
but though love had compensated her for virtue nothing could make amends to her for her loss of honesty she could break a moral law with less suffering than might be expected from her bringing up but the sentiment most characteristic and naturally so of the middle classes is a respect for the property of others and she had eaten of stolen bread oppressed and sickened by this idea she shrank back in her corner and filled with a sordid loathing of herself she moved instinctively away from dick at blackpool mr williams's pimply face was the first thing that greeted them there was the usual crowd of landladies who presented their cards and extolled the comfort and cleanliness of their rooms one of these women was introduced and specially recommended by mr williams he declared that her place was a little paradise and an hour later still plunged in conscientious regrets at having eaten a luncheon that had not been paid for kate sat sipping her tea in a rose-coloured room End of chapter twelve